Welcome, welcome, welcome to season four of the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. Can can you believe it? It is, well, it is it is August right now, but when you hear this, listener, it will be September 1st, and this is the first episode of season four. It's mind-blowing. I can't believe it. It is very exciting, and I'm particularly excited because uh, I joined the BRP team partway through last season, So, uh, and now we have Jonathan Wong, our producer, editor as well, so we have, this is our first full season going forward with the full team, and mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I feel pretty good about that. Yeah, I know. It's very exciting. A fresh start, yeah. as we've been, uh, certainly, I've been talking a lot about fresh starts this week, mm-hmm. uh, but more importantly it's been it's been weeks since i've talked to you kate how are how are you doing i'm doing great uh i haven't had as as big of you know life changes as you have driving across the continent and you know starting a whole new chapter of your life in arizona um so i'm really excited for you and excited to see what Mm -hmm. comes of all of that but um, I've, I've been great. I've been reading, I've been, uh, writing, I'm working on a clarinet concerto right now and it's yes. incredibly daunting, but also <laughs> exciting. So, uh, yeah. yeah, doing great. How about cool. you? How was the move? Oh, the move. It was, uh, surprisingly smooth. I just That's couldn't great. believe it. Um, I've mentioned this to you before and maybe to some other friends, but I like to define myself as a defensive pessimist. Uh, <laughs> so I assume I assume that everything that could go wrong is going to go wrong. And I plan for that. And because of that, as well as my wife, she is much more of a, a planner than I am. But because of that, I think is why we had such a smooth trip. But mm-hmm. we had the best I can't believe I'm saying this. We had the best border crossing experience ever. <laughs> the they were just everyone was very happy for me to go to my doctorate. Great. And uh, the guy that we dealt with mostly um, kept making jokes uh, every kind of like two minutes. So uh, the day before, I said, "Kristen, like we we can't. We just need to go. We need to go in there. We're not no small talk. We're not joking with anyone. We're just gonna do that. And then then we meet this guy, and that's all he does. So that was great. And then the drive was great. It was really nice to see kind of the middle of America. Uh, we drove yeah. down on an angle there, so that it was uh, you know very very different. Uh, and then got into Tempe, and it's just been really uh, fantastic so far. Um, the ASU uh, band team has been extremely welcoming to. Uh, both I and my wife and they helped us move in, move in even. I don't know how many director of bands (laughs) will lift your couch for you, but uh, (laughs) luckily I found maybe the one that would. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it's been really great. And then things are just kind of starting up this week a little bit with some marching band leadership things. And uh, is tomorrow Friday? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as of when we're recording anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So then tomorrow the full band gets back together. Very exciting. Uh, which will be exciting. And I had, I have to audition the trumpets on Saturday and all that fun stuff. Anyway, I'm really excited to be here. You'll probably hear more about it as the season progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have some much more exciting news. Uh, we hinted at this uh, at our last, I guess, uh, one of our first bonus episodes we released um, that there's some new collaborations in the works Mm -hmm. and we're excited to announce our new collaboration with uh colorful music and jody blackshaw who is a past 
guest of BRP and what uh, we are calling the Colorful Initiative. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'll, I'll let you talk more about Stuff. Yeah. Um, well, listeners, we will have more to share as we go forward into this uh, new season. But for now, what we'll suggest is if you haven't already, um, go to the Colorful Music website and check out the resources that Jody has put together. She has a team of, of people who have volunteered their time to um you know, really create a wealth of uh, resources that we can all benefit from. Mm -hmm. So the website is excellent in itself. You can take the pledge, um, which you can learn more about um, as well by going to the website. And we feel the need to just um, spell out the, the name here because Dylan and I <laughs> and Jody, um, we all spell colorful with a U, um, but all of our American pals, you know, may have some trouble. So colorful with a U, full F U L L <laughs> music. <laughs> And that's how you can find that. Yeah. Um, but it's really exciting because we're, we're also going to be partnering with a couple of other, um, like-minded individuals and initiatives uh, in this collective and, and working together yeah. to um, really just bring some awareness uh, to, to people all over the world uh, when it comes to diversity in programming and educational practices and all things, um, you know, that everybody in the music community will be able to benefit from. So it's, it's something that we mm -hmm. feel strongly about and, and really good about, you know, collaborating on going forward. So super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Kate had mentioned the resources that colorful music offers, uh, but also just the kind of the diverse minds that are being put together for this initiative are great resources within themselves. And I mean, I, I don't want to go list on list all of them, but, uh, we th can think, uh, it's the, our, our own past guest, Caitlin Bove and her organization, and we were hers going to be involved mm -hmm. as well as a number of other ones. So there'll be lots of stuff for you to latch onto, to check mm -hmm. out yeah. and to absorb because as Kate mentioned, um, this is something that's really important to us. And anytime we get interviewed about the podcast, uh, it's something that we really, uh, make sure to mention as part of our mandate. And, um, and I should also say that I think as a podcast, we'll also be making the pledge uh, to yeah. to look at who we're programming um, and and to make sure, as we've mentioned before, that the podcast the podcast doesn't look like just one person or just yeah. one kind of area in our in our profession, but we're really representing everyone who listens as best that we can. Yeah. Um, so really excited about this colorful initiative i think it's a great name we had a meeting to come up with it it's awesome i love it <laughs> uh but super excited about that um the other thing that i'm super excited about is today's a lot of excitement today guest i know yeah. well you know me i just never stop uh but uh today's guest uh, since i'm now at Arizona State University. And as I say in the episode, I'm actually in the band TA office right now with my uh, colleagues' desks surrounding me, filled to the right. Kristen's desk is behind me here. Um, we thought it would be great to speak to someone who has a great connection to Arizona. So we uh, actually are talking to uh, 
professor, Gary Hill, who is director of bands emeritus here at Arizona State. And it was just a real honor and treat to talk to him and to hear his stories and uh, just to hear, I guess, how the theme for me that kind of stuck out was authenticity Mm-hmm. And how important that is in every aspect of our field. And no matter what you're doing, if you're going to be a teacher or a composer or a conductor or a producer, whatever it is. But it was just a really great conversation with lots of things to kind of chew on. Yeah. The thing that stood out for me most was just the word curiosity. It's one of the mm-hmm. first things that um, that Gary talked about in our conversation. Um, and just how that has led him to such a diverse and well-rounded wealth of experiences over the course of his life and his career. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to give too much away because we should just let people, you know, listen to the conversation <laughs> itself. Um, but this was, you know, starting off season four with a bang because we talked about so many different <laughs> topics that you would not think would be related whatsoever, but mm-hmm. but they are somehow miraculously. Yep. So yeah, it was it was just thoroughly entertaining and enriching and something I think in there for everybody. Absolutely. And much like Kate, I'll leave, I'll leave the mystery there (laughs) and won't give you too much away. But one thing I will say is great teachers. The thing I've been thinking about is a lot of great teachers and I guess artists in general, uh, really have an ability and skill to connect things that we would think are not related to music making uh when we think about maybe our shared teachers kate and and who we've been able to work with i Mm -hmm. i I, it's it's amazing to think about how they also have done what gary does and and have brought kind of real life into the music making process and don't live this kind of walled separation um, that i think sometimes we fall into like music's its own thing but it's all the circle of life (laughs) no maybe not i'll not sing again (laughs) that's okay um but we're gonna play that conversation for you soon but before we do that would you consider doing us a favor since we've had so much time off you might have forgotten but (laughs) (laughs) what is what is that favor kate Yeah, the first time of many times this season that I'm going to say this. (laughs) Listeners, if you could please uh, head over to whatever podcast platform it is that you are listening to this on right now and make sure that you've subscribed to the Bandroom podcast. If it's Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a rating and a review. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you think. Uh, You know, put put some words out there for other people (laughs) who might be considering, you know, which podcast am I going to start listening to next? It, It really does help us out because it helps other people find the podcast and you know that is that is the name of the game here we want more people to hear these awesome conversations that we're having Mm -hmm. absolutely and there's other things that we want you to hear too and one of those things is our bonus episodes which you can hear if you become a patron of the podcast uh, because today we just had a really great bonus episode session i don't know what to call it yeah. uh, with gary and he he uh, bestowed upon us three not one but three really great <laughs> stories from yeah. uh throughout his career and, and things that have happened that uh you know may not have gone as smoothly <laughs> as one might think we had That's some laughs but yeah. his stories were also like full of advice 
So yeah. I think it's really it's really fun yeah. when there's like a, a funny story that also you learn something from. So mm. you'll, you'll definitely one about, want to check uh, that out. Toxic gas. So uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, so and how can people just... hear that um, selection of stories, Dylan? Well, thanks for asking, Kate. <laughs> they could uh, go check out patreon.com slash bandroom pod where uh, you can see uh, those bonus episodes as well as a great growing back catalog of bonus episodes but also extra bonus content that will be starting up again which i need to say just because we've been on break and I, we need to get <laughs> our butts in gear so yeah, but there'll be uh monthly zoom hangs with kate and i as well as some extra stuff as well depending on what tier you may consider supporting us uh, with and we are once again, immensely grateful for everyone that has done that. Um, it's a great help to the podcast and to our investments into um, just bettering the podcast. So thanks so much for doing that. And I realize that this intro is going a bit long, but it's the first one back. So please have mercy <laughs> on me, everyone. Uh, but without, <laughs> without further ado, here is our conversation with Gary Hill. Well, here we are for another exciting Bandroom podcast. And today is, for me anyway, I'm not going to speak for Kate, but today is a very, very exciting. Uh, it's the first episode of season four. Uh, I've just gotten to Tempe, Arizona, which is very exciting. I'm coming to you from the TA office at ASU, and we have um, none other than the man, the legend, Director of Bands Emeritus at Arizona State University, D D Professor Gary Hill. So welcome uh, to the band room, Gary. Thank you very much, Dylan and Kate. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, this is great. And I've uh, I've just, I've heard so much, of course, from my teacher, uh, Dr. Jason Kassler. And uh, I'm just so glad that we could finally connect and share your thoughts and all of your stories with our listeners. Um, so I guess we'll start where we always start. Where, why, and how did your musical journey begin? I think my musical journey began in the 19th century. Okay. <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh, my prized possession uh, is I have a, a silver, sterling silver spice rack that belonged to my great-great-grandmother, given to her by her students uh, 149 years ago. Wow. So this little piece from 1872 says, dedicated to our trumpet teacher and uh, music teacher from her students. And I understand from my grandmother that she played trumpet in the town band and uh, taught piano and so on, uh, as most people did in those days. Um, uh, other than that genetic possibility, <laughs> uh, my journey uh, started in uh, through my parents, who were both extremely good amateur singers. In fact, my mom uh, was a professional singer in a professional choir for a while. Uh, and I have to say that just out of sheer luck, I've lived a very charmed a musical journey. Mm -hmm. And these are things that you can't predict. None of us has any control over, but I feel extremely fortunate. Uh, and, and let me explain. Uh, 
by what I mean by that. I, I was singing in church choirs uh, by the by the time I was six. I was one of the boy soloists. But then fortuitously, we moved to a town with phenomenal music programs, a town of Plymouth, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, where um, I happened to be in a boys' choir until my voice changed and I couldn't stand it anymore, <laughs> at which point I decided, gee, band looks like fun. I think I'll learn an instrument. Uh, and uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, my my middle school band director happened to be the father of a, a very famous uh, conductor who's become a, a very good friend of mine over the years, Larry Livingston. Uh, his dad was my junior high band director. When I was in high school, our band mm-hmm. program just exploded in numbers and uh, we went to the Midwest uh, mm-hmm. Clinic, played there uh, in the late 60s. Uh, and even moreover, uh, because of the number of students in the band program, uh, I started teaching privately uh, in uh, the uh, late 60s. And as it turned out, put myself through school teaching privately um, okay. at the University of Michigan. And that was what I decided I wanted to do, uh, be a gigger and teach privately, but but things gradually changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had phenomenal teachers all the way through uh, junior high and high school, private teachers. I was in uh, William D. Ravelli's last band uh, my first year in college. Uh, Fifty years ago this fall, uh, I had... Uh, I started a journey with Elizabeth Green as my conducting teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't get better than that, yeah. <laughs> but it does. I mean, it keeps getting amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, after school, I taught high school in two different uh, high schools, uh, actually taught beginners through high school in two different mm-hmm. communities, West Bloomfield, a uh, uh, suburb of Detroit, and then uh, in Traverse City, Michigan, uh, near Interlochen. Okay. Uh, those turned out to be just absolutely perfect places for me to learn to teach. And in fact, at Interlochen, I had the opportunity to uh, work with Frederick Fennell really closely oh, wow. because just fortuitously, he was the interim director of bands at Interlochen at the Academy for okay. one year of my uh, time at Traverse City High School. So he would just drop by our rehearsals <laughs> quite regularly. Uh, and uh, rehearse the ensemble, uh, talk with the students. Uh, we would go to breakfast, go to lunch, you know, those sorts of things. My you can't goodness. you can't buy that kind of luck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, during my master's degree, uh, Bob Reynolds came to University of Michigan. Uh, and at that time, uh, the faculty, the summer faculty at University of Michigan uh, were often guests. So... Uh, even though I was a percussionist by trade, mm-hmm. I was able to study horn for several years with Harry Burve, who was Toscanini's first horn, oh, wow. um, and studied clarinet with an array of people, uh, including John Moeller and David Schifrin, um, and got to be involved with Bob Reynolds' first conducting workshops at the University of Michigan, uh, the Band Conductor's Art, which were very intensive multi-week uh, workshops where we met all kinds of people from Frank Battisti and John Painter and uh, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody who was anybody at that point in time <laughs> in the band field. Right. So very, very lucky. And then uh, my uh, university career, I started as Alan McMurray's 
first associate at University of Colorado. I was at a, a small school in Texas for four years, uh, East Texas State University, uh, and then at UMKC for 13 years, and then the last 20 at ASU. And I must say at ASU, uh, well, I know we're going to talk more about this, but I was so lucky because uh, my, let's see, would have been my fourth year there through my seventh year there, um, Gunther Schuler was composer in residence. Oh, great. Uh, he was actually artist in residence at the School of Music. And as it turned out, uh, he taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I consider him my last great mentor. Uh, I learned so much from Gunther in those four years that I couldn't even begin to describe it. Uh, everything that I thought I knew, uh, he told me I didn't know it well <laughs> enough. And, of course, he was right. Yeah. So uh, that's that's the kind of short version of my of my journey. Um, I should mention in high school, I had the opportunity to study uh, one summer with uh, uh, one of Sousa's last band members, a guy named John Haney, okay. who was also a very famous band director in the state of Florida. Wow. So anyway, oh my goodness. there we are. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> there's, just, there's just so much to unpack. Lucky person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you keep using the word luck. But I, knowing the 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 stories I have heard about you and your work ethic, I, I think also have to do with that. Uh, not to mention an extreme amount of talent. So, but yes, but hearing the people that you know just by chance had come into your life, like what what are the chances that you know, <laughs> Ravelli? Like you were in Ravelli's life. Like I right. that that right. blows my mind. Um, well, being as young as I am, but, um, but this is so fantastic. And, uh, I do want to go way, way back just for one second. What, what was that original kind of trigger for you to, to want a career in music? Was it having, having parents that were musical and that just kind of went from there? That was a part of it. Uh, to be honest, in high school, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, and I was, I subscribed to the American Bar Association Journal. I mean, I was really, it was weird. <laughs> I was just convinced that that's what I wanted to do. I have no idea why, mm-hmm. um, because it was just, I don't know, I got intrigued with it. But uh, between my junior and senior years of high school, I went to a music camp uh, at University of Michigan. And then uh, my girlfriend decided that she was going to go to school to music school the following year. Um, <laughs> and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Uh, and uh, she wasn't my girlfriend for long, but in any case, uh, you know, it seemed like the world was <clears throat> starting to point in a different direction. And mm-hmm. honestly, uh, my dad, uh, who was a history teacher and a high school principal, he, he didn't really care. Uh, he thought it was a cool idea. I was thinking about law. But my mom... Uh, kept saying to me my senior year in high school, why would you do something instead of something you love? Uh, why would you not want to do something that you just love? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're, you seem to be pretty good at it. And, and I mean, you know, I know you're only 17 going off to college, but um, why don't you think about that? And, and, you know, against uh, as a 17 year old boy, you know, your mother's advice is not something you always take seriously. <laughs> but in this case, I did. And I ended up ended up uh, at the University of Michigan. Okay. 
Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. Well, uh, you're a, uh, well, I guess, I guess you didn't follow love to, <laughs> to go to school, but, uh, <laughs> no. but you are the, maybe the third guest, right? Kate, that has been in a boys choir, <laughs> um, and has had a great career. So yeah. anyone out there who's looking to have a really great career, go sing in a choir first. <laughs> there you and, <laughs> riches await you. Oh, totally. I think there is a lot to that. Of course, you know, I really do. Um, and there were there were uh, Plymouth was an amazing extraordinary town. I think it still is. But the the musicians that have come out of there, it's just it's ridiculous. And the talent. Um, I might mention that Tom Hulse was mm-hmm. also in that boys choir, which is okay. an odd coincidence. Yeah, yeah that'll that'll do. <laughs> no, you're right, Dylan. In bringing up that um, people who have these early childhood experiences in a musical community, whether that's through family or singing in a choir, joining a band early, you know, it, it really sets them up for a lifetime of music appreciation, if not a full-on career in music, which is the case for you, Gary. Um, we wanted to uh, mm-hmm. dig in a little bit to what influences your gestures as a conductor. And this is something that I know nothing about, but I'm really curious to ask you about. Um, and that is, how does your study of biochemical reactions to the music making process and your score study influence your gesture and influence you as a conductor? If if you'll indulge me for a few minutes, this is going to take a little background. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> happy to. <laughs> so, I mean, my... My personality is, uh, I am insatiably curious and have a ridiculous imagination. So anything I find intriguing or curious, I'm curious about, I tend to follow. Uh, I mean, right now I'm reading um, five books uh, that have to do with CRISPR technology, um, Noise, Daniel Kahneman's new book. Um, completely, it seems all unrelated, but but somehow related to everything we're doing. And and uh, I'm reading a book on on the body's reaction to trauma, which which I find fascinating. Um, and and again, lots of relationships to music. So let's just set that aside and go back to 1984, which is really where this all began. I was a student of Elizabeth Green, and she is, of course needs no introduction to most people, but she was an incredibly influential teacher for many of us uh, that went through the University of Michigan. Uh, in 1984, she came and did a two-day seminar at the school I was teaching at in Texas, and she made the comment to me that she thought my students looked fantastic and they were, you know, they looked like they'd been right out of her textbook and da-da-da-da-da. And I'd already been thinking, well, I wonder, though, how how do people become more of themselves while using these techniques? Because I'd seen a lot of, lot of Miss Green students who hadn't really grown much. They looked very similar to what they did in mm-hmm. conducting class, which struck me as odd and, and somewhat concerning. Uh, and she said, well, my idea was I'll give you the basics and your musicianship uh, will take you where it's going to take you. And she mentioned some of the former students of hers uh, and how different they were from one another. Uh, uh, Bob Reynolds doesn't look like Mm -hmm. her. Uh, David Whitwell doesn't look like her. Uh, John Whitwell, you know, and so on and so forth. And I understood that. But at the same time, in my observations of 
professional conductors, especially, but other university conductors, I'd started noticing that there didn't seem to be necessarily a correlation between what I saw, what I understood at that point to be conducting technique, which is purely in the hands, and what was the response of the ensemble, both musically and and apparently expressively. Mm -hmm. So I became really curious about this. And uh, when I got to ASU in 1986, I just uh, decided I would do an experiment. And uh, the experiment went like this. I, I had a graduate conducting class of 20 people. Uh, most of them were choral majors. And I thought, what would happen if I created a short movement survey, like five 30-second excerpts from very contrasting uh, music, and simply asked them to come in privately to the, the big room with a camera running and just do whatever you want to, whatever comes naturally to you as a response to these excerpts. And I didn't know where this was going, but something was telling me that there was way more to this bodily communication business than I knew. Yeah. So this occurred. And over the weekend, uh, what I did was, since all of these were experienced teachers, I made little mock adjudication sheets uh, for each of them as I would watch their videotapes. I would say things like, you're really sensitive to phrasing, but your dynamic range is very narrow. Your this and that, your rhythm is strong, but you need to pay attention more to line and the phrases. Your this and that. Uh, in any case, I brought these in Monday to class and I said, I have no idea whether these will make any sense to you at all, but you are going to help me understand this art better by, by responding to these. And there was this long silence in the room. And then uh, you know where this is going. People started saying things like, did you hear my choir last year at the festival? No. Why? This is what the adjudicators said. Hmm. Did you hear my band last year? No. <laughs> well, this is what I've been critiqued on for several years. Did you? And sure enough... You know, and I, I repeated this experiment several times with different classes, and, and it was very consistent. Uh, so I knew that I was on to something, and that was this, that however their complete body was moving, posturing itself, expressing itself, mm -hmm. were was actually revealing everyone's musical priorities. Mm -hmm. not, necess not necessarily their musicianship, but their priorities. Mm -hmm. And so I thought to myself, what would happen if we started looking at teaching um, against priorities and broadening what you think about in the way you're communicating? Uh, just coincidentally, I then got involved with um, an examination of uh, what's sometimes called primitive emotional contagion. Uh, this is kind of pre-MRI, pre high technology stuff. And okay. there were a lot of people already writing about and talking about emotional contagion between people. So this was pretty fascinating. Uh, and then mm -hmm. as uh, technology improved and as my curiosity started uh, going in multi-directions, um, I started looking at the latest research in neuroscience and became a real neuroscience kind of hobbyist 
um, and -hmm. tried my best to understand what exactly it was people were saying. Um, I read uh, Nature Neuroscience every week. I looked at articles. I followed footnotes. I started making friends with a few cognitive neuroscientists and asking them stupid questions, um, especially those that were writing specifically about music. Uh, Mm -hmm. And through looking at all of that and then the discovery that plasticity indeed doesn't end at an elementary school age and then Mm -hmm. the discovery of mirror neurons, um, I thought, wow, we are really onto something because all of this is connected with conducting. And as mm-hmm. as my um, knowledge was expanding in this area, that then transferred into the way I was looking at scores, the way mm-hmm. I was trying to teach myself, sort of reteach myself to conduct, the way that um, I was teaching conducting. All of that started changing um, through that whole decade and a half up to the time that I went to ASU um, because I was learning so much and understanding so much about communication, bodily communication, that I really didn't understand before. So mm-hmm. now how does that affect my gestures? <laughs> um, <laughs> I had been studying scores as seriously as I could, but like most people, um, I'd had so many sort of traditional conductors uh, who said, no, never listen to a piece before you study the score, Um, you know, study the history and the theory and don't don't do anything with conducting, uh, internalize the score. All of these are all good things. But Mm -hmm. at some point I'd come across uh, what is called Hebb's Law, uh, which says that neurons that fire together wire together. And I started thinking, you know. This has something to do with my craft and art. Uh, If we're not moving while we're internalizing sound, how Mm -hmm. is it that our movement is going to be connected to that sound? And I started asking people these questions, my mentors and and older conductors, and it was always, well, you know, it'll just happen. Well, with experience, well, listen, I, I, I thought to myself as a conducting pedagogue, there has to be some way of starting this journey earlier. And so I thought, you know, I started experimenting on my own with, with score study that involved moving, not, not conducting patterns, but just moving as the music unfolded, as the sonic model developed within me, and then gradually slightly narrowing that movement into something that could be uh, done on the podium. Um, And suddenly I found that the response of the musicians and the efficacy of my rehearsals uh, improved dramatically. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and people started noticing, and and that was the real key for me, is I had had friends who I'd known for years, I guess conducted their group, and they said, wow, what are you doing? Uh, I don't know what you're doing, but something's really changed. (laughs) And um, students would say things like, I don't know how you got us to play like that. (laughs) Because we've not been sounding that well, but how did that happen? I mean, something weird is going on here, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was, it's not inexplicable. It actually Mm -hmm. has to do with knowing how the mind works as best we can now, knowing about the body and mind loop that's constant and knowing that communication 
has everything to do with your entire makeup. And that's from primitive emotional contagion on through today's current neuroscience. Uh, it's not just your facial expressions. And I'll get back to that in a second. It's yeah. not just your conducting your what you do with your hands and arms. It's everything. It's your postures. It's your movement. It's your character. But the, the biggest key to all of this is if you studied your score uh, in a way that you have absorbed the music and learned to communicate through the music, then you are doing something that's authentic for you. And authenticity mm -hmm. is an absolute must to this entire process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I started rebuking things that I had learned just 10 or 15 years prior, like working with a mime on facial expression, um, doing theater exercises to open up my my face, etc. I mean, if you're really stoic and austere, I suppose those exercises certainly can't do harm because they perhaps free some inhibition. But mm -hmm. uh, when you when you're working on conducting and you want to communicate music, you have to be authentic in your expression. So mm -hmm. um, I became a huge believer in singing every single layer of the score um, and singing it as closely as I could to the correct articulation, pitches, rhythms, um, character, and so on. And if, if I couldn't figure it out, I would sometimes lean on a piano as a crutch, but mostly just kind of testing out my oral skills. Right. And of course, the side benefits of that are not only that you create a context-specific vocabulary with your body, but you also mm -hmm. know the score really well. And I think you earn the right to stand in front of a group and to represent the composer's creative work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because people that don't understand this process will, will guess at things like, well, then aren't you really just choreographing the music? It's actually the opposite. Because when you have multiple ways of conducting the same section of music based on the different layers that are there, you then actually are like a great jazz improviser. Mm -hmm. You have all of these ideas, which you can immediately change, and I do all the time, depending on what's happening with the ensemble I happen to be leading. So you, you have the freedom to improvise because you've laid the groundwork by learning a score at a certain level. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it has to be said, you can't learn every score that you're going to do that way it, because this takes dozens and sometimes over 100 hours, mm -hmm. depending on the piece of music. Yeah. But if you have two or three or four scores a year that you just are sure, man, I'm going to play this piece forever or uh, mm -hmm. this is this is a piece I love and I really want to learn at this level, you will know that piece so well that you actually really do become the music. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, another side benefit is that the tools transfer to other pieces. Mm -hmm. Music is like DNA. And, and yeah. um, Kate can either argue with me or, <laughs> or say that this has some merit because she's the real deal. Uh, <laughs> and And so in my opinion, you know, uh, between musical pieces, it's kind of like looking at the DNA between mammals, uh, especially uh, other primates. Uh, chimpanzees and us are like 98.6% the same DNA. 
but that little 1.4% makes us quite different. So likewise with musical compositions, with the exception of extraordinarily unique pieces, mm -hmm. which we run into once in a while, there's a DNA that is similar. Um, and so because that's so, let's say that I have half a dozen real specific gestures that I'm using in a particular piece of music. Somewhere down the road, some years, some month, that same gesture is going to come back in some maybe subtle variation for some other piece of music. And if I keep mm -hmm. doing this with three to four pieces a year, over 10 years, now I've got hundreds of gestures that I can alter slightly, tweak slightly, yeah. use different hinges in my hands to express, um, combined with a different body posture that says just the right thing that I'm that I'm seeking it to say with another piece of music. So it really does deepen your ability to communicate in a really um, gestalt sort of manner. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a very long answer to your question. No, that's that's wonderful. <laughs> All of that influences, and and I it. The biochemical part, I, I got intrigued for a long time with oxytocin and dopamine and so on, the things that are happening inside of us during mm -hmm. collaborative music making. And, and I, I, we don't need to go down that road right now, but that's, that's endlessly fascinating to me. And, and one day I am convinced that, uh, in fact, we already have the tools, but we just don't have the money. I'm convinced mm -hmm. that we're going to discover... Uh, exactly what's going, what's happening, and the differences between various kinds of collaborative music making. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's going to be great fun. Lots ahead of us. Yeah, I agree. That's so <laughs> exciting. Sure. Um, I have so many follow-up questions that I won't ask right now. Uh, I'll save them for some <laughs> other time. But um, the the couple of things that stood out for me in all of that is just that it started with curiosity. You said that you you know, just have an insatiable curiosity for, for things. Oh, yeah. And um, that is really evident in your work and what you have discovered and how you've been able to apply what you've learned to your craft, to your practice and to your career. Um, and I think that sets a really fantastic example. I also am struck by just the the history of neuroscience and what we as a society have learned about the human brain and the connections between body and mind and, you know, all of that uh, in the past few decades has been just, you know, no pun intended, but mind blowing. It has been really um, <laughs> there's just a whole world that has opened up, I think, in that yep. field of study. So it's so interesting to align the development of your career with how those things have opened up in, in the field of neuroscience and all of that. So just, just really, really interesting to draw those parallels. Well, thank you. And, and may I say a couple of other things? Um, it, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Um, relative to what you just mentioned too, the, the idea of mirror neurons is, is fabulous uh, because um, it's scary as conductors, to realize that everyone looking at us is mirroring what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an extraordinary thought. And it's intimidating. And at the mm -hmm. same time, freeing. My favorite moments in rehearsals are when I hear an error and realize that that person's totally connected to me and that's why they made the error, because I made the error. Mm -hmm. I love those moments. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's a demonstration in real time of, of the whole principle of mirror neurons. Uh, the other thing that's fascinating about yeah. what you said, Kate, and, and what we've learned and how much we have yet to learn is the old models that we thought about with the brain um, are not necessarily true. We know now that the brain works in networks of neurons that both go vertically and horizontally and also back to front. I mean, to be a really phenomenal mm-hmm. conductor, I think, involves most of the brain of back to front from from the reptilian brain through the limbic system to the frontal cortex and side to side certainly and these and yet i still hear people talking about well you know you're really a right brain person or a, if you've had a stroke that's possible <laughs> but otherwise you know the, the networks are much more complicated than that We're but all the best conductors that, <laughs> right exactly yeah. and the best conductors and frankly the best composers i think think in a very lateral way and, and, and in a very holistic way. Their brain is on fire. All systems are connecting. Associations are being made. Um, I think it was Bruce Adolph that said, all memories are, are always in the mind. And uh, part of what a composer does mm-hmm. is, is either consciously or subconsciously retrieve those. Uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I bet we could come up with a whole like book list um, between all of the things that we've read on these yeah. various topics. We'll we'll have to uh, come up with a couple suggested reading uh, items for for listeners. Terrific. Maybe. But we could talk <laughs> about this at great length, I'm sure, for a very long time. But perhaps we'll move forward for now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for just from a um, kind of, I guess, a, kind of a shallow uh, conductor audience members. Cause I'm just like the biggest connector nerd. And, uh, I, it was, this was a question that I had and I was actually sitting in your old office yesterday or the day before, <laughs> um, talking to Jason about this. And, um, just as someone who, uh, has been a great admirer from afar and has watched every possible YouTube video of Gary Hill conducting, <laughs> um, I have just thought to myself, I have never seen i've never seen someone move like you and it is it's been so eye-opening to hear you talk about movement because all of the things that you said are what i was thinking and my immediate thought is this man moves like the music he is Mm -hmm. the music and everyone reacts to you like that um so to hear you talk about movement and 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 it's just it was just like exactly what i was thinking and it's it's um quite fascinating well, thank you, Dylan. But no one should move like me, of course. Uh, and, and that as a conducting teacher, I really attempted to do. I think Miss Green's fundamentals are still mm-hmm. valid, absolutely valid and absolutely sensational. But everyone must be their own selves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that was that was going to be my second point was when I think about, uh, well, being here and then thinking about the, the legacy of students that you've had. And I'm not going to go name name all of them. But like you said, there's I don't think there's one that looks like you. They look like themselves. Um, and that is a testament to your your teaching as a conducting pedagogue. Um, and uh, since we're on the topic of. ASU. And it, today I look, it looks like I'm trying way too hard. I'm like, where I'm wearing, wearing the shirt. Um, but I, I did, I, we did just come from, um, hanging out with, uh, HUD. That's James G Hudson. It's a uh, marching band has started up this week. So we had leadership stuff happening this morning. Um, but, uh, since, 
uh, I'm in this office in the building. What are some of your highlights during your time at ASU and maybe some of your most cherished collaborations? Cause I, there's just, I know there's not, there's too many to list. You know, my 20 years at ASU were pretty special. Uh, I, I have to say the most cherished collaborations were definitely the, the rehearsal time with students um, because there is just no substitute for making music with people that are passionate and, mm-hmm. and curious themselves and, and devoted to making music. Um, and of course, the faculty there and the guests that we were able to bring in, uh, uh, those are remarkably uh, strong and fond memories. Um, I, I don't know how many composers we collaborated with. I, I certainly mm-hmm. lost count, but, but it, I mean, when you have people, uh, especially in the early years when we had uh, budgets were not so much of an issue, um, besides Gunther being there, when, when we would have people like Bernard Rands and Chen Yi and um, Jim Overly and, you know, you name it, uh, coming in, those collaborations, each and every one were, were just phenomenal. Um, I think that um, creative concert making, which became such a big part of what we did, um, was was something I that I remember. I have again many many fond memories of of uh, doing things with DJs, um, playing at the Botanical mm-hmm. Gardens and the zoo, um, playing cool. with Derek Roddy uh, on a piece that Cynthia Justin Turner uh, actually. Uh, one of her students wrote and, and she sent it to me and I said, we got to do this. And uh, mm-hmm. Derek came and um, playing it at shelters, sending chamber chamber music groups out to play uh, at shelters for abused women and, and uh, homeless shelters. And uh, the uh, what I think Jason likes to call the jukebox concerts that we did <laughs> where, where the group would uh, very slightly prepare a dozen works and the audience would vote at intermission, uh, (laughs) having heard 30 seconds of each of those, which one they (laughs) wanted to hear. And that became the second half of the concert. Uh, It was fantastic for the musicians and and certainly challenging for all of us as conductors. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Those were were great. And, 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 you know, the big concerts, of course, were um, things you never forget. Uh, The... uh, 2003 CBDNA performance uh, with the Chamber Winds uh, and uh, the large group uh, where we we did uh, things that actually involved electric guitar and strings and uh, and uh, I didn't I didn't really think much of that I mean <laughs> my goal always is just to simply um, think what would be an interesting thing if I were an audience member, you know, uh, or mm-hmm. what am I curious about? What, what would be interesting and what are we doing at the time? And, you know, I, I'll never forget at seven o'clock the next morning, Frank Battisti came up to me and put his face right in mine. And he said, that was very brave. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And he said, you'll find out, you'll find out. <laughs> and come to find out because we had had a a string group that was part of our chamber players. And because I'd had the audacity to do one of Bill Frizzell's works um, (laughs) for that he had written for the San Francisco uh, museum of modern art. um, And I had, we, we, it it involved electric guitar with amplified string quartet. um, 
the audacity to do that. Uh, apparently, <laughs> I was no longer a band person, uh, a real oh, band no. person. Uh, and, and, you know, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, the 2007 um, ABA concert, we did a history of the wind band and music, uh, which mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. Um, had an oboe band. We had at that time very large double reed studios, and we had an oboe right. band uh, that was huge and, and uh, started <laughs> like that and so on. The, right. uh, um, performing Black Dog with Bob Spring yep. uh, with the entire ensemble in metal band wear. That was pretty <laughs> fun. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the 2019 CBNA performance was uh, mm-hmm. certainly something I'll never forget. Yeah. So too many memories to list, but those are some highlights, I think. No, those are are, are fantastic. And I, I, before I forget, I want to mention that there's, um, there's a really great kind of, uh, I guess, uh, catalog of, of many of the, these performances and, and we're going to link as many as we can um, to to our episode links to, just so oh. you can hear what what Gary's talking about so we'll get our, our researchers on top of that ASAP cool uh, we have no researchers <laughs> <That's interesting>. um, <laughs> we'll do it we'll do it um, but yeah there's <laughs> there's just there's so much to kind of unpack and, and one thing uh, that I, I really want to talk to you about is we're going to go back to that 2003 one after, but, um, but I do want to talk about um, the last uh, CBDNA conference um, because we, I guess near the end of season three, we had John Mackey on and mm-hmm. we were talking about his piece uh, places we can no longer go. And I know that you had a very, very pivotal part in that piece coming to fruition. So I was wondering if, if you could maybe just share a little bit of, of your side uh, of, of that, that piece, what it means to you, uh, the creation of it and, and all of that. Well, first of all, John and I have a long relationship that, that goes back to <clears throat> 2003. Um, the person who was at that point, the head of ASCAP mm-hmm. uh, brought John to the 2003 conference. And um, subsequently I went to the ASCAP awards where John was one of the young composer winners, uh, a few months later. And I said, Hey, uh, you know, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm going to, I've been asked to do Redline tango for band. Um, and, and it had been just premiered, I guess at that point by, uh, uh, Minnesota, maybe if memory serves. And, and so I said, why don't you come to school? Mm-hmm. Why don't you come to ASU next year and, and let's do the transcription. So I'm only mentioning this because the history with a composer, uh, if you have a history with multiple composers that you're working with, if you're lucky enough to be able to do that, that results in some interesting things for both parties. Um, and and I think that might have been the case. John and I, John had come with me to the Texas All-State in 2005, I think, to do that piece. And so we had this, we had an established relationship. Um, is That's the whole point. And when, so 10 or so years later, uh, mm-hmm. when, when John's mom was diagnosed with, with Alzheimer's, I had had several family members and, and friends who had gone through this journey. And I, I, I wrote John and, and as he says in the note, you know, um, uh, I really said, John, you just, you have to, you just have to. And, uh, it took him a long time to come to the decision that, that mm-hmm. he would. And I understood uh, the pain of that decision and, and what he was going through. And I didn't push 
too terribly hard, but mm -hmm. also didn't let go. <laughs> um, and uh, and as a result, you know, I, I again, I, at least it's been my experience that that when a composer is uh, is skillful and writing something that's meaningful to them, writing about something that's meaningful to them, uh, it doesn't always guarantee a good piece, mm -hmm. but um, it often does. And I thought this this could be something pretty special. Uh, mm -hmm. And indeed, I think it turned out to be something very special. Um, yeah. So uh, that's really my side of things. And of course, what John created, and, and John, as you guys may know, is not, I mean, John is not um, overly confident like most composers uh, are not. Um, he sent me the MIDI mock-up uh, in... Uh, let's see, was it November perhaps, um, and said, I don't know what I think of this. I've, I've really, <laughs> I've tried to solve all the problems I've been having with it. And, right. and uh, I made the mistake of having, having a drink. I'd had a, had one, a, a drink, not a Canadian <laughs> drink, but a regular drink. And uh, I, I'd, uh, yeah, I learned a long time ago, never party with Canadians. Their blood is just hey. different. Anyway, um, <laughs> So I was I was relaxed and, and so on. And I listened to this MIDI. I put my headphones on. I listened to this MIDI. And I was absolutely sobbing by the end, yeah. mm -hmm. just from the MIDI. Yeah. And I, I said to John, this is, this is stunning, John. This is incredible. And I thought, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just being emotional. So I, I brought my wife and uh, stepdaughter into the room and I said, sit down and listen to this and tell me what you think. And they listened to the MIDI, same reaction. And I thought, yeah, this is, uh, this is something. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really great to hear kind of your, the, the conductor side. And then also us having on record, John's the composer mm -hmm. side of this, uh, this creation story about the piece. Um, and also I, I, I was just been thinking recently because, you know, this being the year we're relatively back in action. We've been talking a lot this past week about reflection, about what we've gone through and, um, and also the reflection that was happening during the pandemic. And uh, a lot of people were talking about like the last impactful performance they heard. And I, and it was like a Twitter post that maybe I think Cindy might've posted it. And, um, and so many people put that your performance of, of John's piece mm. on that, um, and, uh, and I, I know like the YouTube video does not do it justice, but I can only yeah. imagine. So thank you for, <laughs> for being part of that and, you know, and pushing John. <laughs> well, no, I was going to uh, save this story for the, for the bonus, but, um, oh. I have to say that that was also the, probably the most frightening performance, uh, that I've ever led because, um, this is one of those weird things. You, I know you've heard about this already, mm. probably, but but one of the things that's weird on the YouTube video is the lighting, because um, at the very beginning of Steve's piece, my <laughs> light and the light of all the musicians oh, in the front row went out. They never came back on for the entire second half. <laughs> so we were all in the dark for 60 minutes. Now... <laughs> the musicians, uh, they got enough light. They have younger eyes. They got enough light. They could, thank goodness, 
pretty much see their parts. But because I was in the dark, A, I couldn't really <laughs> see anything but the page of the score and kind of go, oh, yeah, I think it's that mm-hmm. page. But B, the people antiphonally couldn't see me. And so it created mm-hmm. some problems in John's piece, unfortunately, but nothing, you know, deadly, just it wasn't, it wasn't quite what it should have been. Um, but it was very frightening uh, for me because I was, you know, after about a minute and I realized that I couldn't get the, the lighting person to understand what had happened. And um, it didn't seem like things were going to change. I just kind of, it's one of those <laughs> yeah. moments you just take a deep breath and go, well, <laughs> guess I'll trust myself. We've had Steve's piece for two weeks, but hey, here we go. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> yeah, and that goes that goes to say, um, uh, you know, how uh, we're always told as students that if we mess up in a performance or something goes wrong, just keep going, and the audience won't even notice. And from the audience perspective, I can say that I I thought it was all the effect. I thought that was on purpose. So there you go, folks. <laughs> A little, a little top secret biz information that you got today from Gary Hill. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a good thing that you're known for your memorization, too. I'm sure that helped. Well, thank you. But to say I had those two pieces memorized would be a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, um, again, so much to say, um, but I'll, I'll try to focus my, my thoughts here just on how important it is for composers um, like myself and, and John and everybody else who, who has to collaborate or who gets to collaborate um, with conductors and performers on a regular basis. It's just so important to have that encouragement and whether we are feeling confident about our work or we're just a little bit apprehensive because of how personal it is. You know, the, these are the kinds of scenarios that uh, all creative people encounter and we can fall back on our confidence in our skills and our knowledge and experience. But when it comes to sharing something just straight from the heart or that is a, a real representation of something that we're living through at the time, it makes all the difference to have um, to have collaborators who are open to feeling the feels with us, you know, and to uh, just giving us the little push that we need when we need it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just so glad um, to hear about collaborations that have gone that way. Mm-hmm. Did John tell you that he didn't end up listening to rehearsal tapes that we sent him, rehearsal recordings? He didn't want to hear it, right? <laughs> right. He, he admitted that when he finally got there a few days before the premiere, uh, he said, I haven't heard this yet. I, I couldn't. I started <laughs> to listen. I just couldn't. <laughs> the, so, yeah. That was it, it was that personal, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems like almost every episode we talk about the importance of community. Often, maybe our guests bring it up to why they became interested in band. Community is a big part of why many of us do what we do. Absolutely, and that's why I love our new partnership with the Canadian Band Association, to share an opportunity for you to be part of a national community of band directors, musicians, and educators. And becoming a member is easy. By joining your provincial band chapter, you automatically become a member of the Canadian Band Association. No matter if you're in British Columbia, Newfoundland and Labrador, or anywhere in between, there is a band association for you. Yes, 
even my homeland of Prince Edward Island. They started a new one, which is very exciting. Membership benefits include access to the Canadian Winds Journal, monthly e-news, national insurance program, national youth band audition discounts for students, access to national awards and musician certificates. Not to mention all the great events your own provincial chapters will hold. Conducting workshops, community band events, reading sessions, workshops, and more. Support band and music education in Canada through supporting the work being done by your local chapter. To learn more about how you can become a member of the Canadian Band Association, visit canadianband.org chapters to find info on how to connect with your provincial chapter. That's canadianband.org chapters to learn how you can be part of the Canadian Band community. Okay, well, we're going to do a big pivot here. Uh, this has <laughs> perhaps nothing to do with anything that we've just been talking about, but I hope it'll provide some uh, relief from the emotional intensity of what we've been discussing thus far. Um, how did you discover your passion for dog training? And how does this knowledge and your experience in this regard uh, affect what you do, affect your conducting? Oh, man. This is fun. Well, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about that you might ask this question <laughs> because it seems to be what people are asking these days. I really, um, <laughs> passion for dog training really didn't start till 10 or 12 years ago. I, I'd always had dogs and loved working with them, but I got incredibly interested when I started the, support, the sport of dog agility uh, because I very quickly realized that because of the speed that things were happening at, that this was very much like communicating with a musical ensemble, uh, in that music can be very, very complex at times. And communicating in real time with a complex piece of music is, is um, something that is not easy and takes a lot of time to learn how to manage. Uh, so... Um, as the ideas, as I was mm -hmm. learning to be a better and better dog trainer and handler through this sport, I started realizing, wow, there are so many parallels, except that this dog, my former dog, and now my current dogs are making me actually a better conductor because I'm paying more attention to little things. So a dog's vision, uh, for example, their processing mm -hmm. speed is much higher than ours. Um, we see a little below 60 frames a second, which is the speed that movies and TV run at. So we see just continuous. A dog processing speed is about uh, 70 or 80 frames per second. And so they process visually much faster than we do. Plus their peripheral vision is 270 degrees or so. And so they see things that we can't even imagine that we saw. We might see them subconsciously, but they see them and process them at a speed that we can't relate to. And I started noticing that in, in mm -hmm. trials and practice and so on, I, would, I started wondering why on the earth did that dog just do that? I said this, or I thought I motioned this, and this, this, this occurred. And then I would look at a videotape and realize yeah, you know what? My left foot was pointed in that direction, and that's what that dog followed. Uh, and so 
I got really intrigued with this mm-hmm. whole idea of, well, this is fascinating because, man, humans cut you all kinds of slack. I mean, it's easy to be a conductor compared to handling a dog on an agility course <laughs> because people override your stupidity. And dogs, of course, they're sight reading the course. They don't know what you're trying to do. They're just doing it, right? So they don't actually make any mistakes you do. Mm-hmm. And it got me uh, thinking in a much a deeper level about the responsibilities that we have as conducting conductors rather. And then there are um, some really specific things that are just tied into learning and how people learn through positive reinforcement, um, how it's so important to allow people to make mistakes. Oh, that's a big thing in dog training uh, for science-based trainers anyway, um, is that you have to give the dog a choice always. Dogs have to be given choices within a specific environment and because the only way they learn is to make the wrong choice and not get reinforced for it. And then they experiment and they make the right choice and they get huge reinforcement, uh, either their favorite toy play or, or a lot of times their favorite food or something outrageously good that they weren't expecting, like a piece of steak or raw chicken neck. And mm-hmm. they just go, wow, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that. So, you know, you think, well, yeah, that's kind of what we do with with musicians, too. Um, the pre-MAC principle comes into play. Uh, the pre-MAC principle says you're willing to do a certain behavior if it's going to lead to a better behavior. I mean, what do we do with especially young musicians if we're teaching middle school or, or uh, uh, high school? Um, we give them permission to play based on their behavior, basically, and that's what they want. They're there to play. Uh, not to listen to us pontificate. Uh, And Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the whole positive reinforcement, the whole idea of choice, the whole idea of restricting the environment, uh, this is particularly apropos younger students that we might be teaching, Um, not overloading them, not not teaching to one more than one variable at a time. Um, this is what we do with dogs. Uh, I've taught my puppy to heal really well in the position I, I want her to, um, because, or him rather, because I restricted his environment. I put him against the wall to teach him to heal next to me. He had no choice. He couldn't wander away from me. Uh, and, and that's kind of how we, I think we should teach younger students. We restrict their variables, Right. Um, and you know, it goes on and on. These things have made me, I think, a, a better teacher, a more sensitive teacher. Uh, and I think, um, I just, I can't wait always to learn more and more about dog training and, and, uh, cause I love working with, with other species, but I also, um, I also think it makes me a better conductor and teacher. And I, I am one day going to be brave enough to apply to do some session somewhere on this because I think there's value in it, even though it yeah. sounds absolutely crazy. Oh, yeah. No, there's this, no, it it's a self-reinforcing it's, loop. It's, there's Kate, definitely really, value and, and to Dylan, it. It's a self-reinforcing <laughs> loop. Um, the more you learn about dog training, the more you think, wow, that's kind of cool because, you know, and it, it just keeps keeps going back and forth. I love it. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I, I love what you said about um, restricting the variables. I, it makes me think of how that applies to um, the creative process as well. I'm always thinking from that perspective as a composer, but you know, when working with with young people, people who are being taught to uh, you know, write their own music for the first time, um, or, you know, even other forms of art, sometimes just saying you can do anything is way too overwhelming. Uh, there are too many variables. So adding some, some structure in, um, keeping in mind that, you know, we have to really work within smaller kind of steps here to get, um, to get people to, to hop on board with, with being creative and taking risks, learning new things. Uh, there's, there's so much that what you've shared, um, can really be applied to within our field, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I, I must admit, because um, I think I feel whenever we were talking about the idea last season, uh, just in a kind of a team meeting of, of, of asking you to come on the podcast, Jonathan had mentioned uh, this to us, the dog training thing. And I was like, no way, that's crazy. And then, <laughs> and then the other day when I was in Jason's office, he had he had mentioned it again. Uh, and then uh, so my initial thought was I was kind of freaked out <laughs> just to think that someone could just make such a s- slight gesture and how it how it would influence the, s- the students in front of them. But, uh, but but hearing you speak about it, I'm like, oh, this just everything just makes so much so much sense. <laughs> so uh, listeners, you're getting your money's worth today, which I realize you don't pay for any of this, but um, you've learned <laughs> about uh, a great music making, a, a great musician, and some some tricks that you can bring back to your canine friend. So there you go. What a, what a great first episode of season four. Yeah. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Um, um, but going, uh, hopping back on the uh, kind, I don't know, the music train, not to say that we weren't talking about music, but um, anyway, uh, uh, you are known for uh, great music making and picking great music. Uh, so I'm wondering, how has your repertoire selection changed throughout your career? Oh, my goodness. That's actually pretty easy to answer because my repertoire <laughs> um, selection has changed relative to our burgeoning repertoire. I mean, mm-hmm. think about this. In, in the early 70s, Bob Reynolds uh, wrote a book along with Eugene Corporat and Alan McMurray and uh, a couple of other people called The Wind Ensemble Literature. Um, at the same time, Acton Osling had written a book about uh, music of artistic merit. So there were, there was a lot of music that was being discussed. And as a young teacher and conductor, I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I read Frederick Fennell's forward to the Reynolds book, mm-hmm. where he says, we now have a repertoire that's so large that if I conducted a concert every day for the rest of my life, I couldn't cover <laughs> all of these pieces. And I thought, well, that's true. Well, it was true then, but think about what's occurred since then. In the last 50 years, things have absolutely exploded and exploded in every possible direction. So as mm-hmm. things unfolded, uh, so, so did my ideas about, about selecting repertoire. I, I was pretty adventurous always, but students also taught me an important lesson, and that is that they also wanted to play traditional things, uh, especially uh, the higher end students who had in mind auditioning for 
military bands or teaching at a university or, or, you know, doing orchestral auditions. They wanted to make sure that I understood that they loved contemporary music too. However, they also wanted to play other things. So I, I try mm-hmm. my best always to balance uh, things out. But I think in terms of repertoire, um, the way that, that, uh, I think about it beyond what I've already said is that that um, if if I consider the context that I'm conducting, meaning what kind of group is it, if I consider the mm-hmm. purpose of what I'm programming for, and then add to that the incredible diversity of perspectives from creative people, co- composers that we have now compared to what we did 20 years ago to say nothing of 50 years ago, you take those three factors together and you should be able to come up with hundreds of really fascinating program combinations that address always mm-hmm. all three of those. I'm teaching middle school band. What's the purpose? The purpose is not the same as the community band, not the same as the professional mm-hmm. band, mm-hmm. not at all the same as the university ensemble, etc. Then how do I want to be diverse? I want to be diverse stylistically, historically, culturally, in every other possible way. And now I have the resources because of our online connections. I have the resources to listen to thousands of pieces of music if I have the time and say, Mm -hmm. wow, I love Kate's piece. That's going to fit right here. Wow, John Mackey's piece that he did five years ago is going to be right here. Ooh, I hear Kevin Day's writing a new piece, and it sounds like it's going to fit right here, and on and on and on and on. Uh, It's so cool. Well, at the same time saying, yes, but, you know, I don't want to forget. I also want to do the Dvorak Serenade because for (laughs) these players, not only is it a great piece of music, but it's very important for them as as Mm -hmm. for their education. So, Not to short change that uh, topic, but but um, if we stay open and aware of everything that's going on, our choices are incredible, which means that mm-hmm. we can't afford to be picky also. Right. While we're supporting the work of new composers and the living composers' new works, which we always must do, we also can afford to be really picky. And a piece that we thought was great 20 years ago suddenly is, nah, I don't really need to do that anymore. There's just mm-hmm. so much to do. And that's a good thing. That's yeah. a good thing for the profession. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So much to do in so little time. So <laughs> little time. Um, but no, there's there's just so much. Oh, man. I We need to do like... I usually say a two-parter, but I think having Gary Hill on could be like a four-parter. Just a, and it, <laughs> a each series. one would just be great. Each one would be great. Oh, thank you. You're uh, kind. <laughs> but uh, there's just so much great stuff <laughs> to unpack. And like um, one thing that, that really echoed with me is the, the idea of realizing the purpose of the ensemble in front of you. Because I... I'm certainly guilty of it, and I know I've observed it much more than luckily than I'm guilty of it. But, you know, trying to fit the triangle shape over the circle <laughs> and taking what a community band does and give it to my uh, whatever group and we're going to do the greatest hits from, you know, whatever. I could name anything. But um, but that's it's really important to to, re- to think about and realize what, what the purpose of, of your ensemble is in front of you. Yeah, I think that's 
just really great perspective. Um, and as we are heading into the start of a new academic year and people are, you know, dreaming big for our return <laughs> to band and playing music together <laughs> after some time away and, you know, for a lot of people, uh, it's it's great to just be reminded to be well-rounded um, in, in making yes. repertoire selections. So thank you so much for that. I can tell you that Jason Kastler's thinking big here. Look at this. Yeah. Look at this. <laughs> Got Maslanka Maslanka four. four. Yeah. We've got, if that's not enough, we got uh, Kevin Day's new Ooh. concerto for wind orchestra, which is so be exciting. Great. Yeah, there's lots here. <laughs> Kevin's ridiculous. I don't know how how one person's how does he produce that much music in the time he does. I, oh yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we had him on a, a couple. Well, I guess a couple months ago. Yeah, it's uh, unbelievable. Yeah, he's a force for sure. Um, and all of his music is good. So it's just, I guess he's just got a lot of good ideas right now, <laughs> which is fantastic. <laughs> um, okay, so we've talked about this a little bit throughout this conversation. Um, you've you've given us some examples of when you've done this, but we're wondering if you could talk about some times throughout your career when you've gone against the grain or, you know, done things that are a little different from, from what people might have expected you to do uh, and why it is and was uh, important for you to do so. You know, what's interesting about this is that I never did any of that on purpose. Um, I was simply using my imagination and thinking about what could be um, and, and, for me, growth has always been about taking risk and sometimes failing and sometimes succeeding. Um, I mean, when I was a high school uh, band director doing the marching band thing uh, in the uh, mid-70s, um, I had a wonderful, I was lucky enough to be at a school that the, the playing was spectacular for that, that uh, era. Uh, fantastic high school marching band. And, but they had this pom-pom group that stood in front of them. And it was, it was weird to me. Why would, <laughs> why would pom-poms have to be involved with, <laughs> with what we were playing? It, and it was their tradition. And I got that. And I, I said, I met with them one rehearsal uh, after rehearsal one day. Uh, and, and I said, you know, how many of you have taken dance? Um, and all of them had, they'd all had ballet as kids in fact, they said, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons we're here is because we have a dance background. And I said, well, what would happen if we're going to we're going to do this big show mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're going to play at a couple of marching band festivals? What would happen if if instead of having your pom pom outfits and, and being tied down to these two things on your hands? What would happen if we put you in uh, some sort of dance outfit and and we created choreography? And they were, they were, well, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. well, why not? Aren't you guys trained dancers? <laughs> well, well, yes, but, but I mean, this is marching band football. So yeah, but we're, we're talking about a show. We're not, we're, we're doing it at a festival. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with football. How do pom-poms work with Holst, the planets? Uh, to me, that's some sort of weird juxtaposition <laughs> that I can't quite get my mind around. So anyway, so I didn't think that was strange, but, but at this particular festival, the, the judges uh, were like, 
that's that's amazing. Why we've never seen dancers with an ensemble outside. <laughs> and I didn't do that to make any kind of statement. It was just it was one of those why not uh, mm-hmm. moments. And you know, uh mm-hmm. that's those have followed me everywhere. And I, I think part of it is my imagination and part of it is just the idea of if you can't, if you don't try something and learn if it works or not, why not? Uh, when I went to University of Colorado, I went from a 180-piece high school band that played extremely well outdoors to an 80-piece college marching band, 20 of whom were flags, trying to fill a university stadium with 40,000 people. So there's a problem to be solved, right? So how creative could I be? Well, mm-hmm. CU had a great jazz choir. Do you want to do a show with us? Absolutely. That would be incredible to sing before a football audience. Yes. So we did a mm-hmm. show with a jazz choir. Could we use tricks to make us look better than we were? Um, sure. Let's do a Wizard of Oz show and use fire extinguishers to create smoke effects and do all these you know, things. <laughs> um, unfortunately, because of the altitude and dryness in Colorado, uh, the guy who I rented the fire extinguishers for, he said, well, CO2 won't work here. I know it did where you're from in Michigan, but you have to use dry powder. <laughs> well, of course, I hadn't really thought this through, right. and it was artificial turf. And so when we left the field after halftime, our entire show patterns were on the field <laughs> in in um, basically white dust. The football coach was not pleased. Anyway, um, so you take risks, and and I don't know. Uh, I've always been thinking in creative ways about concerts. Uh, I mentioned the thing in Minnesota. Um, I mean, I, why not? Um, mm-hmm. I think that if you keep framing music the same old way, um, you wear out the frame after a while. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like having a Kandinsky inside of a renaissance frame you know i mean it's an interesting juxtaposition but there are more interesting ways to present kandinsky yeah mm-hmm. yeah i was uh i think well i think the one thing that we can all latch on to if we leave with anything maybe we can put it on t-shirts is why not and just the idea of of you well, and you said it, it was the first thing that you said was uh you can't force originality um but being authentic like being your authentic self, as you said, even earlier in our conversation is kind of what led, led to that. But, um, yeah. And going back to that 2003 performance where you said, um, you know, Frank Battisti came up to you and mentioned, you know, you, you you might not be one of the band people anymore. I think that's okay. And I think it's more important to be one of the music people (laughs) than it is the band person. Um, and you've certainly exemplified that throughout (laughs) your career and still do. Yeah. Well, thank you. And for the record, uh, when Gunther and I were talking about this program, because his piece in Praise of Winds, you know, is a huge symphony. Uh, if, you, if you know that work, uh, either of you in mm-hmm. Praise of Winds, uh, his symphony, of over 104 separate players. Uh, it's, it's a monster work. And, mm-hmm. and he conducted it up at the, at the concert. And he asked me, uh, what else is on the program? And when I told him, that uh, Bill Frizzell's piece was right before his piece, I was expecting that he would just absolutely ream me out for such a stupid idea of setting his symphony up with Bill Frizzell's piece. 
And instead, here's what he said. I have to follow Bill Frizzell, <laughs> the greatest jazz player in the world. Right. Whoa. And he meant it. Yeah. yeah. Great art is great art. Yep. So we've sadly come to the our last official question of this interview. Um, but I'll, I'll remind everyone out there in podcast land that uh, the three of us are going to go off into uh, a place called bonus episode land. So you can hear more of Gary Hill and his fantastical stories. Uh, and you can learn more about that by uh, thinking about if you wouldn't mind considering uh, supporting us through Patreon and you can learn more about that by visiting patreon.com slash bandroom pod that's patreon.com slash bandroom pod to learn more but before that um, uh, Gary if you could give one piece of advice to conductors educators or musicians in general what would it be and it, it doesn't have to be one piece of advice we just say that thank you um, growth every day Try to develop and maintain a growth mindset. And if you really want to understand that better, get Carol Dweck's book on mindsets. It's a fantastic read. But a growth mindset uh, encompasses something that is hard to maintain for us as, as musicians uh, and teachers. Because we, we're often afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. um, the poet Rilke uh, in his book, uh, Letters to a Young Poet, um, said this in a very, very poetic, obviously, and <laughs> eloquent, eloquent way. Um, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, Live day, some live along, excuse me, some distant day into the answer. Wow. And I think that's, for me at least, that's what life is about. And certainly mm -hmm. that's what our art is about. It's living in the now and living the questions. Mm -hmm. And just to come back to dog training <laughs> <laughs> from Michael Colgrass's book, My Lessons with Kumi. One of my favorite stories, he's talking about stage fright, and he says, you know, the difference between people and dogs is this. If we're walking on an icy lake in the winter and we, the ice cracks and our leg falls in, we then scold ourselves for nearly drowning, and we spend the next five or ten minutes talking to ourselves about how we could have just lost our lives. Mm -hmm. A dog, if that happens... Their leg comes in, it goes out, and they say, wow, okay, next. They've already <laughs> moved on. They only live in the now. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things I love about being with dogs is that very thing. They keep reminding you to stay in the now mm -hmm. and live the question. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. Wow. I'm, I'm yeah. seeing Dylan, you know, a big smile because he likes when people give advice that can be put on a t-shirt and <laughs> so many of the things that you just said could easily be put on a t-shirt so <laughs> maybe yes. we'll have to get some new merch going love it. i love it but, uh, yeah but there, there's just there's so much so much great stuff and um and 
the other thing that I love, and I've, I've said this before on the podcast is, um, I love whenever advice from our guests is so very, very clearly exemplified in, in themselves. Mm -hmm. You have been an example of, of growth and of, of being in the now, uh, and just hearing everything that you've said for the past hour or so, it's just, it's so evident that this is, this is what you live by too. So thank you for this advice. Um, it's a great honor for me, um, in particular, just being here <laughs> at ASU uh, as we speak and having the opportunity to pick your brain uh, and to hear these stories and to share these thoughts with our listeners is just such a great treat. So thank you uh, for taking the time to be on the podcast. And I look forward to your visit. I'm just saying that. I don't know if you're going to come visit, but I hope you do. <laughs> I will. Thank you, Dylan. And thank you, Kate. It's been a real pleasure to share time with you. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom podcast, give us a rating and a review, and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider becoming part of our Patreon community where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet, sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, where your comment might be featured on a future episode of BRP. The Bandroom Podcast is produced by the wonderful Jonathan Wong. And our theme music is Skyline, composed by EKR Hamill and performed by Dr. Gillian McKay and the University of Toronto Wind Ensemble. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room. <laughs>